Hello and welcome. Let's hope you're not superstitious, because this is episode 13 of The Rycooter Story, a podcast dedicated to music, movies, and career of slide guitar master Rycooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rycooter fan from Berlin, Germany, as ever bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we're talking about Cooter's ninth solo album, Borderline. As we heard in our last episode, Cooter was on the verge of becoming a full-fledged film composer in the early 1980s, but he kept the beat for two more studio albums. Borderline was the first of them, released just a few months after The Long Riders premiered in theaters. It's another foray into the world of soul and R&B, and well worth a listen. So here we go. Before we get to Borderline, let's talk about Cooter's one guest album in 1980. By this time, Cooter was no longer the session man he had been in the 60s and 70s. There was much less demand in the music business, but if the right project came along, he was still willing to play for others, especially if it was in an interesting musical area. This was even more the case with the famous Okinawan musician Chukichi Kina. Kina, born in 1948 in Koza City, now Okinawa City, became the stuff of legend at a very young age. Called the King of Koza by some, he ran a folk music club there and apparently made a quick buck as a dealer in a gambling casino. As early as 1966, he formed a band called Champlus. Success came much later, however, when they recorded their eponymous first album in 1977. It received overwhelming public attention at the time and is now regarded as a seminal chapter in the annals of Japanese rock. Two years later, while touring Japan with David Lindley, Cooter met Kina for the first time in the lobby of a tourist hotel in Osaka. But Kina hated the place. As legend has it, he just sat there, stared straight ahead, and didn't say a word for an hour. A year later, however, Cooter received a round-trip ticket to Hawaii with a note that read, A la Mona Hotel, commercial recording studio, please. Kina. So sometime in 1980, Cooter flew to Hawaii for the recording of Bloodline, the second album by Shokichi Kina and Champlus. He was one of several guest musicians, playing on four tracks, including the wild opener Jing Jing, which featured cheerleader chants interspersed with a band of keyboards, woodwinds and flutes, electric guitar, and some slide work by Cooter. The song later climbed to number two on the British disco charts. In a 1993 interview, Cooter remembered the recording session. Kina had a habit of throwing himself down onto the floor and kicking his feet when he liked to playback. When Kina's wife, Tomoko, put down the vocal on Flowers for Your Heart, he lay down and stayed down, making the engineer play it back over and over until he had wrung himself out. A real playback party, Okinawan style, 
Right about then you know you're ready to start recording for real, but it never works out that way. You squeeze off one or two, say adios, and go to the house. Then later, maybe four people discover your little contribution, and then someone wants to reissue the album. And there you go. The ballad Flowers for Your Heart features Cooter's mandolin and a majestic electric slide. In the early 1990s, the bulk of Bloodline, including most of Cooter's contributions, was featured on two Kena Best of Albums called Introduction and Peppermint Tea House. But as we will see, Kena's influence was already audible on Borderline. This is how Cooter described the music to Rolling Stone magazine. That's the Tex-Mex of Oriental music. It's an Oriental scale, a five-note scale. It's real lively and happy jumpy and choppy like Rady. I like the way it sounds, and if something sounds good, I'll use it. In fact, Cooter had no reason to change his musical style significantly after Bop Till You Drop. For the first time since his 1970 debut, he had not only won over the critics, but also found a receptive audience. So a few new influences were appropriate for his next album, but not a radical change like those following chicken skin music and jazz. He said, Bop Till You Drop pulled me out of a weird hole. It's crazy to make records nobody buys. It's just a waste of time. Once you make the decision to cut a record, you figure that's a public gesture and you want to get the record out there. With Bop, I finally did that. It sold about 300,000 copies, which is six times what the rest of them ever sold. It was just in the nick of time, too. Warner Brothers had a big blackboard up there and an eraser, and a lot of names were suddenly disappearing. Borderline was another Warner Brothers production. It was recorded at the Burbank studio on the same 3M digital system that gave Cooter headaches during the production of Bop Till You Drop. As we'll see, things didn't go much better this time around. Lee Hirschberg returned as mixing engineer. From the long riders personnel, Jim Keltner returned on drums and Babu Pierre on percussion. From Bop Till You Drop, there was a reunion with Tim Drummond on bass and Bobby King on vocals. Newcomers were Reggie McBride on bass, William D. Smith on piano and organ, Jesse Harms on synthesizer and Willie Green Jr. on vocals. And there was another new collaborator, a certain John Hyatt. He was to play a role in the Cooterverse for the next few years that was at least as important as that of David Lindley. Born in Indianapolis in 1952, Hyatt had a troubled childhood and was a rebellious teenager with a penchant for fast cars and Elvis Presley. At 18, he moved to Nashville and quickly proved himself a talented songwriter with a distinctive singing voice. He released his first albums in the mid-1970s, but they were as unsuccessful as his MCA albums from 1979 onward. However, 
He did manage to get featured in William Friedkin's 1980 film Cruising. The soundtrack was produced by none other than our old friend Jack Nitsche. It was through this connection that Hyatt finally met Cooter, who was always looking for new song material. The two hit it off straight away. Hyatt not only brought Cooter the song he wanted, he also recommended himself as a musician in Cooter's album band. Cooter said, At a certain point, I found out John was a ripping, great guitar player. Not ashamed to just bear down and beat it out twangy style. He really could do that. A lot of people, especially in Los Angeles, in those days, were a little too careful for my taste. Session players were always trying to not step on toes and not crowd the singer or the artist. Everybody was very polite. I didn't care for that at all. I liked that John would just dig in. He's a very exciting player. The cover of Borderline is a mild provocation similar to that of Chicken Skin Music. It features a naked female bullfighter painted by Spanish artist Carlos Rona Lopez, who documented his love of bullfighting in countless paintings during the first half of the 20th century. As Boo Browning wrote in the Washington Post, The cover is of a piece with most of the songs the album contains. A female matador strikes a pose of balletic confidence as the wild-eyed bull, on whom the bacaders have already performed their sanguinary task, makes the fatal hubristic rush. A little dramatic, perhaps, but a nice balance for the literal sparseness inherent in tunes lamenting the way we wound ourselves with love, only to charge at it again before the blood dries. There is a lot of love and at least as many wounds on Borderline. The little man from the early albums is still there, but in some of the ten songs he has become a wide-legged macho, very sure of himself, and always with a simple truth at hand. Most of Cooter's protagonists are little losers with big dreams, but most of them never come true. The album is full of humor, irony, and sarcastic wit, and quite often it deals with futile romantic longing, as in song number one. 6345789 came about in the mid-60s when Wilson Pickett took a trip to Memphis to visit his label Stax Records. He met the songwriting team of Steve Cropper and Eddie Floyd at a motel, where they presented him with two songs, 99 and a half and 6345789, the latter a driving shuffle that was a kind of homage to a 1962 single called Beechwood 4-5789 by Motown's Marblets. Pickett chose it as first of the two, and it proved to be an even bigger hit than his in the midnight hour. Cooter takes a much harder approach. He speeds up the tempo, adds a driving organ, and makes the song a much more urgent affair. At the same time, he bids a discreet farewell to the music of the 70s. Here, with this very sound, he ushers in the 80s.
The impatient caller of 6345789 may be in a hurry, but he's nothing compared to the hero of the next song. This guy even has speed in his name. He's called Speedo, to be exact, but as it turns out, his real name is Mr. Earl. He tells us how unsafe everyone else's girl is around him and that he doesn't believe in wasting time. The song was written by Esther Navarro and performed by the Cadillacs. It was a huge hit in 1955 and played an important role in bringing black rock and roll performers to the attention of white audiences. Speedo was covered many times and was even referenced in a Paul Simon tune on his 1973 album, There Goes Rhyming Simon. Not surprisingly, Cooter turns it into a completely different song. His mean vocals turn Speedo into a pretty nasty guy, and the background singers make fun of him with their lusty falsetto. But even more important is the musical renewal of the piece. It results from the complex interplay of drums, piano, and Cooter's sensational electric guitar. The ending of the track is particularly playful when Mr. Earl is greeted by an overly enthusiastic admirer. It's the kind of musical dialogue Cooter first used in Down in Hollywood on Bop Till You Drop. Here comes that old Mr. Earl again, honey. He's so fine. Oh, get on away from here, girl. Ain't gonna be bothered tonight. You can get no doubt, you can get no doubt, son of a bitch. Don't you be holding on to me now. Next up is Why Don't You Try Me, another soul tune from the 60s. It was originally performed by Maurice McAllister and McLaurin Green. They had been members of a choir in Chicago before forming a group called The Radiance in 1960 and recording for Chess Records. In 1965, they formed Maurice and Mac, a duo similar in style to Sam and Dave, but they never broke into the charts. While Maurice and Mac rely on typical 60s soul, accentuated by a striking horn arrangement, Cooter gives the song a light reggae feel and an interplay of organ and synthesizer. That may have been all the rage at the time, but today it sounds rather outdated.
The story this song tells is also a bit dated. Our hero, it seems, has been pining for his neighbor for a long time, but she is clearly in what we would now call a toxic relationship. Does he really think she will take pity on him at the very moment she is fleeing her husband's violence? Fortunately, the song doesn't answer this question. The hero of the next track is not too bright either. This song, however, is on a completely different level, as it is not only about futile longing, but also about social disadvantage and injustice. It is about a boy from down in the boondocks, a remote area where money is scarce and respect is low. He is allowed to see his beloved from time to time, and maybe she even loves him, but as a member of the lower class, he has no chance of officially dating the boss's daughter. Down in the Boondocks was written by Joe South around 1964 and pitched to his longtime friend Billy Joe Royal. Legend has it that his recording was originally cut as a demo for Gene Pitney, a claim Royal later denied. Eventually, Royal's recording was released as a single by Columbia in 1965. It became his first hit, reaching number 9 on the US Billboard Hot 100. Cooter's revision sounds much more adult and mature. His singing makes the protagonist's suffering seem more convincing than Royal's mousy teenage voice. Unfortunately, the organ and synthesizer are also quite dominant here. They are a real weak point of the album. Nevertheless, the strong vocals of the backup combo make Down in the Boondocks a highlight of Borderline. From now on, the song was part of Cooter's live repertoire. While the singer from Down in the Boondocks tries to save every penny he can to escape his misery and start a new life, our next gutter boy goes off the rails. For him, there is no escape from the Boondocks. His name is Johnny Porter. He is just 20 years old when he steals a gun from his father's truck, commits a robbery, shoots a man in Florida, and is on the run ever since. Neither his parents nor we find out what drove him to do all this. But there is no doubt that Johnny will not have a happy ending. Johnny Porter was written by Bobby Ray Appleberry and William Cuomo and first released in 1974 by a band called Southside Movement. It became famous when The Temptations included on their house party album a year later. It was also released by The Persuasions and Garnett Mims in 1977. We don't know which of these versions inspired Ry Cooter to cover the song, so let's listen to a little medley. First The Temptations, then the persuasions, then Mims, and finally Cooter. Johnny was the oldest in his family. As I remember, he was almost 21. You know I can't quite explain. 
explain the situation. But he broke into his father's trunk and stole a gun. His mama running after him, a screaming. Johnny's too bad. It's too bad. His daddy wondered where he got that money. He wondered if he got it right or wrong. But Johnny killed a man in Pensacola, Florida. He caught a freight train and took off on the run. You see, Johnny didn't have much education. Johnny's too bad. Johnny Porter closes out the first side of the album with a masterful solo on the electric guitar. Side two begins with a rarity an original song. However, it was not written by Cooter himself, but as already mentioned by John Hyatt. And it's really no wonder Cooter liked the song. It fits right in with his world of hapless lovers and shady cheaters. The way we make a broken heart is thematically very similar to Go Home Girl from Bop Till You Drop. Both songs tell the story from the perspective of two cheaters who are concerned about the person they are cheating on. But while in Go Home Girl, it is the guilt that dominates and leads to the end of the affair, Hyatt's song already has the act of breaking up in its title. This couple may have compassion for the man who was left behind, but they will accept that they broke his heart. It may be sad, but it can't be changed. Cooter's version was the first of the song. Three years later, The Way We Make a Broken Heart was also covered as a dute by Hyatt and Roseanne Cash. Geffen Records never released the single, though. Cash, who would work with Cooter many years later, re-recorded the song in 1987, and it went to number one on the U.S. country charts, making it her sixth number one single. With Cooter, it's more of a soft rock ballad, which, of all the Borderline songs, is actually the closest to the style of Bop Till You Drop. He told Hyatt biographer Michael Elliott about the song, I like the rhythm the tempo, and the beat. I could see how I could transform it into the Latinesque kind of style that I liked. I didn't have to play straight two and four with a heavy backbeat. I was always trying to get away from that. The Latin bass line where you don't play one was the answer for me. That tune fits that way, and it's a nice song. I could play my churchy guitar chords that I like. It's just hard to sing, though. It's a mouthful, a lot of words. I tried that tune in a bunch of different ways, and I think I got a good cut on it. Lesson number one, we just begun to hurt him so. And with lesson two, he'll long for you when lights are low. Then we get to lesson three. Where he gets down on his knees and begs 
just before he comes apart. The Way We Make a Broken Heart stands out from the rest of the album in that it has a modern message, a timeless dilemma. Most of the other songs often seem a bit outdated in their attitude. They are unmistakably from a different era, with different values and morals. Cooter has never been bothered by this. On the contrary, he often seems to enjoy being politically incorrect, which brings us directly to the next borderline song, Crazy Bout and Automobile a work that is at least questionable from today's perspective, glorifying cars on the one hand and degrading women on the other. But of course you have to see the song in the context of its creation. It was written and recorded by Billy the Kid Emerson for the VJ label in 1956. Before that, he helped Sam Phillips lay the foundation for rock and roll at Sun Studios in Memphis. Among other Sun-era gems, he waxed the successful Red Hot, Emerson's version was more rhythm and bluesy, almost a big band sound with a horn section. The song not only tells a story about the 50s, the classic age of the car in America, it also indirectly refers to an alternative meaning of getting to the backseat. This was the age of the drive-in movie theater. To get there, you had to have a car, and without a car, you couldn't even get a date. As is often the case, however, it wasn't Emerson's original version that first brought the song to Cooter's attention. He discovered it through Sam the Sham's 1965 cover. This version is pure rock and roll, exactly the kind of music Cooter will be bowing down to on the soundtrack to Streets of Fire. In a 1983 radio interview, Cooter characterized Crazy About an Automobile. It's a very good song. It's a funny song if ever there was one. A real cartoon. All these tunes are really Bugs Bunny-ish. And that is probably why his version starts like a Saturday morning cartoon show. Everything that follows is quintessentially cooter. There is a wonderful playfulness to this song, a wide variety of styles and instruments, and a hilarious dialogue between Cooter and his backup singers. Again, his hero is a little man who can't get where he wants to go because he can't afford a car. All he has are his rubber heels. But while this may be a bit sad, the whole thing is just pure great comedy. Man, I'm gonna tell you my story. Go on, tell about it, go on, tell about it, go on. Just what I've been doing. Well, you know, I used to be particular about the women's that I predicted. Uh -huh. Yeah, they used to be tender, lean, and tall. That's all. Yeah. 
But the way things has been going, I take them knock kneed and bow legged. What? I'll even take them bald. Oh no, man. I'll tell you why. Please tell me why. Every woman I know is crazy by automobile. In the middle, there's another great slide solo. Crazy Bout and Automobile immediately became a cooter classic. He often played it live in his shows, but also with David Lindley and Little Village. The next song is not as well known, but at least is funny. The Girls from Texas was first released in 1967 by Jimmy Lewis, who had been a member of the Drifters from 1963 to 65. He had then resumed his solo career releasing singles on the Minute label. The song The Girls from Texas is a not-so-serious warning about Texas women who have a rather loose grip on the gun and the razor. I met a girl from Texas Not long ago We dated about a month And I decided to let her go Oh yeah, but She pulled a razor About ten inches or so And every night Lewis' surprisingly undramatic soul song tells the story of another unfaithful man. He wants to break up with the Texan right away, but she has something against it and a razor blade to prove it. So he marries her and starts a normal life with a house, a job, and a 65 Ford Fairlane. But then he falls in love with a cute grocery store assistant who turns out as just as unamused as his wife. When she finds out he is married, she shoots him right between the eyes. He concludes she was guilty. I was dead. Telling his story from the other side like William Holden did in the great film Moore Sunset Boulevard. Cooter takes full advantage of the song's black humor. He transforms it into lively Tex-Mex. That's the way the girls are from And what do you think that old judge said? That's the way the girls are down here in Texas. Hey, Mr. Smith. That's the way the girls are from Texas. You're in the Senate That's the way the girls are from Texas. Leave them right or leave them alone. That's the way the girls are from Texas. That's the way the girls are from Texas. Next up is the album's title track. Cooter wrote the instrumental himself. He later called it a cute little song, and John Tober and Stuart Grundy found it to be a good example of Rye's attitude to playing, where the ensemble sound is of greater importance than individual virtuosity. Borderline was heavily influenced by the music Cooter had been exposed to while playing with Shokichi Kina. He told Guitar Works magazine, They play this kind of real-up, happy, beer-drinking party music. It's real syncopated and real melodic. And then some of the kids took up doing it on electric guitar. And it's real ska-like. And it's real great. Lindley plays a lot of that stuff now. You can hear it in what he's doing. I do a lot of that stuff. In fact, that thing on the record, that borderline instrumental, that's kind of what it sounds like. Only it's my version of it. But the melody, the notes are like Okinawan. Very staccato, you know. 
The album Closer, Never Make Your Move Too Soon, is an interesting mix of irony, hope, and quiet resignation. It was originally written by Styx Hooper and Will Jennings for bluesman B.B. King, who included the song on his 1978 album Midnight Believer. It was a mild hit, peaking at number 19 on the Billboard Hot Soul Songs chart. It's about a gambler who returns home after winning a small fortune in Las Vegas, only to find that his lover has left him a little too soon. On the Cooter version, one finds oneself visiting Motown in Memphis on the same bug-spattered bus, as Boo Browning described it. It's a contemplative rock song with another great Cooter electric guitar. The song ends differently than the original. With King, the singer takes his lovin' everywhere. With Cooter, it becomes the guitar. And if we don't like it, he really couldn't care less. But why shouldn't we like it? Borderline was released in October 1980, except in Australia, where the album at least reached the back of the charts. It was a commercial failure everywhere. For the first time in his solo career, Cooter had delivered more of the same, without being able to repeat the brilliance and energy of Bop Till You Drop. Borderline was undoubtedly a respectable effort, but nothing more. In addition, Cooter was once again unhappy with the digital recording process. Five years later, he told Musician Magazine, It picks up a lot of high-end and loses bass, and that is the glue in our music. The feel is not something that digital can find. Your ear hears in a curve, analog hears in a curve, digital hears in these impulses and combinations of zeros and ones. The master tape is fine, but to go to an analog format like disc means you obviously lose a tremendous amount of information. I went two records that way and wondered why the first time and died a thousand deaths the second one. Borderline I thought was a good record. The master tape was pretty exciting and the record sounded like nothing at all. I was so disgusted and then I asked some questions and found out digital operates this way. Reviews were mixed to positive. All Music's Brett Hartenbach wrote, with 1980's Borderline, Rycooter followed the foray into R&B and soul of his previous effort, Bop Till You Drop, but this time out with a little shot of the Southwest thrown in. At the same time, he also continues the primarily electric sound of that record. As far as his selection of material goes, Borderline may sometimes lack the surprising, esoteric charm of his earlier recordings, but there are still some terrific finds, including the Tex-Mex flavor The Girls from Texas, 
which may be the album's finest moment. Borderline may not have the singular personality of his best 70s work, but it's a solid outing nonetheless. The Washington Post was a little more enthusiastic. Cooter has long been a one-man compendium of American musical history, as evidenced on albums like Chicken Skin Music and Paradise and Lunch. But like any good historian, Professor Cooter knows that preservation entails more than brushing the dust off an artifact, tagging it and putting it under glass. And nowhere has his special talent for merging past, present, and future been so delightfully displayed as on his most recent album, Borderline. Working together on Borderline proved to be a win-win situation for both John Hyatt and Cooter. Hyatt became much better known, for which he was very grateful to Cooter. He said, He became my musical mentor. He was super encouraging. I was just in awe of him, of course, and I was already a fan from when I lived in Nashville. So, I had a band, and we were playing around L.A., and he came and saw us, and he hired the whole band. Cooter had come to realize that he could benefit from touring with Hyatt in much the same way that he had benefited from touring with Flacco Jimenez. He told Michael Elliott, Touring was always a problem for me. Making records was what I liked to do. Touring was not. But you had to do it. You had to show that you were a team player. Warner Brothers wouldn't stand for it otherwise. They wouldn't release your records if you didn't show them that you were going to cooperate. John did have a good group, and I didn't have to pay a fortune to session players where I would come back not only broke but in debt. There was no money in this in those days for me. If I broke even I was lucky. The band was called The Radio Silence and consisted of Jesse Harms on keys, drummer Daryl Verdusco, and James Ralston on bass. Backing vocalists Bobby King and Willie Green Jr. were also on board. In September and October of 1980 they went on a European tour, playing in Ireland, Germany, Belgium, and France. This is how they played Crazy Bout an Automobile in Paris. I'm gonna tell you, man, just what I've been doing. What you been doing? You know, uh, I'll tell you something, I used to be real particular, real particular, about the women's that I picked. It seemed like they always had to be tender, lean, In early 1981, Cooter embarked on his first serious U.S. tour since his 1976 Chicken Skin Review. He played Chicago, Kansas City, Denver, and Portland, Oregon, among other cities. This is a short clip from the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, where he performed I Think It's Going to Work Out Fine on February 22nd.
After the tour, Warner Brothers released a promo LP called Border Live as part of their Warner Brothers music show series, presumably recorded in London and San Francisco. As Cooter explained to John Tobler and Stuart Grundy, The record company thought that since they weren't getting much airplay out of the album, they might do better if people heard something like what they heard at the shows. It was a marketing gesture, and in the States, it was strictly a promotional item which wasn't for sale. I had to listen to all this stuff and choose the tracks that were decent, and I realized that it wasn't what I'd hoped it would be, but not so bad as to not let it happen. And that brings us to the end of episode 13 of the Rye Cooter Story. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will be released in two weeks. It will take us back to the big screen, where we will turn to Southern Comfort, Cooter's second collaboration with director Walter Hill. This one will be interesting, as it is one of the few Cooter movies without a soundtrack album. But don't worry. As usual, we'll be talking about all the music and we'll be listening to it too. In the meantime, follow us on social media. If you could support the podcast on Patreon, that would be greatly appreciated. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.